If you've got a Bible with you, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 14 this morning. So you can turn to Romans chapter 14. And I want to ask you this question. Do Christians ever disagree? That would never happen, would it? Christians would never disagree. Churches would never split because they couldn't decide on what color carpet to put in the main auditorium. Obviously, Christians disagree on a variety of things all the time. Um, I'm sure there's disagreement in our church over certain things that you might participate in, one person might participate in, and another might not. Places you can go, things you can do, the way you can act, you know, per, your personal deportment. We disagree on all kinds of things, and that's nothing new. Um, there was disagreement we can see in the pages of Scripture as we look at uh, what the, the early church, some of the challenges that they faced, they had disagreements as well. And they had to work out how they were going to handle those disagreements. One such place is Romans chapter 14. And so we're going to look at that, and hopefully it will give us some clues and some principles that we can use when we encounter disagreements with fellow Christians. Romans 14 and and the beginning of 15 uh, often comes up when Christians disagree. Romans 14 and 15 is a tool that we can use, but just like any other tool, you have to use it for its intended purpose, right? You don't hammer in a nail with a screwdriver. You don't work on your car, which incidentally I have never done, but you don't work on your car if you've got something that's messed up in your engine. You don't take a screwdriver and start jabbing in there and trying to fix it that way. You use tools for their intended purpose. And the Bible is no different. The Bible gives us principles and it gives us uh, stories and case studies and ways that different things were worked out in the early church that's been preserved for our instruction. But we have to make sure we understand the principles that are being given to us in the proper way so that we can apply them properly. In other words, we can use the tool the way it was intended to be used. And so we're going to try to do that with Romans 14 and 15. Now, obviously, we've only got you know, 40 minutes, so we're going to have to just kick through. And, uh, but I think we can cover everything and go over the main points, and you can get uh, a good overview of what's going on in this chapter and a half. And what I'm going to do is we'll start out just explaining a few things. Uh, for those of you who like to take notes, if you've got any outline people here, um, sometimes it drives outline people crazy if you don't tell them where you're going. So I'm going to explain a few things about the text, make a few definitions, Then we're going to look at four principles for how the believers were supposed to handle the disagreement that went on here. And then I've got like a bucket at the end. My third point is all uh, the little things that I want to wrap up and, and apply for us today. Okay, so that's kind of a little bit of a roadmap for what we're going to be doing. Romans 14 and 15. Now, we'll, obviously, we won't, aren't going to have time to read through this whole, whole section, so we'll read through it as we go. But let me first uh, describe to you the parties and issues that are, that are involved in the disagreement in Romans chapter 14. If you just look, even at the first uh, couple of verses, you'll see uh, that Paul, the person who wrote this book, which was actually a letter to a church, Paul says, accept him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment, 
And uh, then he goes on later to talk about a person who is strong. So we have a person, we have two people that are involved in this disagreement. We have a person that is described as strong and a person that is described as weak. What is the point of disagreement here? Well, there are basically three things. And again, we won't look, keep looking at the text because you'll see it as we go. But the key points of disagreement are vegetarianism. So the weak person is described as a person who won't eat any meat. He only eats vegetables. The strong person is described as a person who has freedom to eat everything. So the strong guy can go to Buffalo Wild Wings and get a huge bucket and, and eat himself silly while the game is going on. And the weak person in this passage is maybe only going to go to Jamba Juice and he's going to have a cup of that wheatgrass. Do you have any wheatgrass drinkers here? Have you ever seen wheatgrass? If you go to Jamba Juice, they've got like, it looks like artificial turf and they cut I'm, I'm not joking. They cut little pieces off and they grind it all up and it makes this bright green shot of juice that's grass that people drink. Okay, so you got, you got the weak guy and the strong guy. They've got one can eat meat, the one can't. Then the other point of disagreement is that one, uh, the weak person, observes all kinds of holy days. He will observe, uh, for instance, the Sabbath or will observe days of fasting. The text says the strong, per- the strong person in this situation esteems every day the same. He doesn't treat any day differently than another. So there's another point of disagreement. And then briefly, I believe in verse 21, it seems like even drinking of wine is, uh, was a point of contention for them. Where the strong person would drink wine, the weak person would not. That is only mentioned in passing in verse 21. seems like the bulk of their disagreement was about eating meat and observing holy days. Now, we have to, to understand a little bit of what was going on in this church that would bring about this kind of disagreement. Um, the text doesn't explicitly say exactly what was going on, but we can pretty much figure out, we think, what, what was happening. We have people who are Jews who come to Christ. As Jewish people, all of their lives, there had been certain dietary regulations, right? There are certain foods that they were not supposed to eat, and there were certain foods that they were allowed to eat. Not only that, there were certain ways of preparing meat. You know, we still have kosher foods today, which means it was done the right way, and it was the same thing for Jewish people back then. So the issue in the text is vegetarianism. The, the Old Testament uh, the, or the Jewish people weren't required by the Old Testament law to eat only vegetables. But whenever there was any doubt, that's the, usually the direction that they would go. For instance, Daniel. He's not going to eat the king's meat, but he doesn't eat any meat at all. Daniel and his friends take a vegetarian position. Why? Because not just, not just the fact that there are certain meats that they're not allowed to eat, but also they're not sure that the way the meat has been prepared is, is in accordance with the law. So they just take that position. And we can easily see something like that happening now. But obviously, with the coming of Jesus and with salvation, you know, Paul is going on missionary journeys. They're taking the gospel to the Gentiles. We now have, in the same 
church building, if you will, people who have had a way of living, people who have had another completely different way of living, and these people collide. And they're having to work out, okay, how, how is this all going to work? We're Jewish people. We've kept the Sabbath. We have these certain dietary restrictions, a certain way of living. And now in Christ, those things have been, have, have been put away. We don't have to follow those things anymore. But there's still, there's still a part of them that that's, that's very difficult. And they see these Gentiles coming from a completely different background. And now all of a sudden, where you have people who are Jews that wouldn't have even eaten with people who were not Jews because the act of having a meal together in that culture was a very, uh, it was a very personal thing. It, it, it had great significance to it. So you have Jewish people that would never sit down at the table of Gentiles. All of a sudden, they're Christians. They've accepted Christ. The Gentiles have accepted Christ. Now they're celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And the way they did it then was they would have a whole meal that went along with it. Kind, kind of like we do it in our church, but probably even more, more together than we do it. We obviously have a meal, but we celebrate uh, the elements of the Lord's Supper during our, during our worship service. They did it together. So you have these two things colliding, and it creates friction, and there's disagreement. And Paul, the person who wrote this, writes to them to try to tell them how they can handle that disagreement. And so he, he talks about four, he gives four different principles that they're to keep in mind as they disagree. So we're going to talk through those four principles this morning. The first principle for handling the disagreement is found in verses 1 through 3. Let's read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 14. Accept him whose faith is weak. So he's addressing the, the person that is in a strong position. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. What's one of the first principles here in verse 3 that both parties are supposed to do? Look at verse 3 and tell me, what's, what's the first thing toward the end of verse that they're to recognize at the end of verse 3? Don't have an idea? What's that? Okay, they've all been accepted. So, the first principle is, both when, there's, when the disagreement occurs, both parties must accept one another. That wasn't happening. There was friction. It says, this, here's what, the strong, what, what Paul says to the strong in verse 3. They shouldn't look down on the weak. And you can see how that could easily happen, can't you? Because the strong person really is in the right. They are making full use of the liberty that they rightfully have. And they've got this other group of people that should be able to participate in these activities, but they can't. And so they look down on them. And they say, well, you should be able to do this. Why, why aren't you coming along? Why aren't you growing? You should be able to do this. And it's almost like, they're almost like a second-class Christian, you know. There's those annoying, that's the annoying side of the church, okay? Okay. <laughs> 
They can't do what they can't do what we can do. But the Bible says, no, no, no. You accept one another. Don't look down on them. And then in verse three, to the strong or to the weak, he says, don't condemn the strong. And you can see how this would be easy too, right? The person looks at the strong as libertarian. I can't believe you would do that. You don't keep the Sabbath. You just, you just go, go to the restaurant, you eat whatever you want. You know, throw the rules out. And they look at them and they, they have a, a condemnatory attitude towards the strong. Paul says, both of you need to accept one another. And the reason you need to accept one another is given also in verse 3 at the end because God has accepted both of you. You accept one another. Don't have this strife and this, and this quarreling among you. If God has accepted both of you, then so should you accept one another. And he talks about both the person that is strong and weak, refers both to them as servants. We're all, we're all God's servants. So what can one servant look over at another servant and start criticizing their behavior or start criticizing them or not accept them? If God has accepted both, we also should accept both. Okay, so that's the first thing. The first thing they needed to keep in mind was that both needed to accept the other. Secondly, let's read verses 4 to 12. I'm sorry, 5 to 12. One man considers one day more sacred than another. That's the week. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life, so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. So the second principle that the Bible reminds us of is that both parties are accountable to God for their actions. Both we're, we're both to accept one another, and we're both to remember that we are each accountable to God for our, for our actions. Again, the strong person is a person who, who eats meat. He doesn't observe the holy days. And he does so with thankfulness in his heart as unto the Lord, the scripture says. The weak does the exact opposite. They don't eat meat, and they do observe the holy days, and they also do that as 
unto the Lord. Now that could be a little bit confusing for us, can it? Each one of us is going to give an account of ourselves to God, and we have, how can Paul say this? We have two people who are doing exact opposite things. Is, is, Paul, uh, is Paul saying that, that you know, it, it doesn't matter as long as your heart is right, what you do is okay? As long as, you have, as long as your heart's right, don't worry about your actions? Not necessarily, because in this passage, we have to keep reminding ourselves that what is at stake isn't a sinful activity. What is at stake is simply a liberty that one group of believers cannot fully grasp, cannot fully make use of. Their refraining from making full use of their liberty isn't sinful, is it? For them, for them to not participate in eating, in eating meat, that's not wrong for them, but they can. But, but, neither, but it's, not, it's not sinful for them for, to refrain from doing so. There are other passages of Scripture that we would look at where the Bible will tell us to take a, a completely different direction because the activity in question is sinful or because it, it tears at the message of the gospel, it's, it's behavior that's not in accord with the gospel. And so the reasoning is completely different. But here in the text that we're looking at, because it's a non-moral issue, that is, that is, that is the disagreement between the two parties, Paul says... Each person has to be convinced in his own mind that what he is doing, he is doing unto the Lord to please God, to to glorify God, and to make God happy. And in this instance, they may be two very different things. So really, the reasoning that the scripture gives here, when it's talking about both of us being accountable to God, what it comes down to is motivation. What it comes down to is motivation. We are not simply going to give an account for our actions alone. We are going to give an account to God who is our judge for the very motivations that underlie those actions. And in this situation, in a non-moral issue, motivation was everything. Both were doing what they were doing to glorify God. And Paul says... That is fine. You're not going to give account for the person sitting next to you. So don't waste all your time and energy trying to change them. Now it's implied in this passage, when it's talking about the weak, they should grow. They should grow. They should be able to grow over time and be able to grasp more and more the liberties that they have in Christ. But Paul is saying, this is creating a situation of disunity. Don't spend all your time on that. You're not going to answer to God for how that person is acting. He is. You focus on yourself and you focus on, on your motivations being glorify God. So if you don't want to observe the Sabbath and you want to eat, eat meat, go ahead and do so as long as you're doing everything as all of life should be as unto the Lord. Okay? So that's the second thing. Let me just read a quote for you. What matters to Paul, just to reinforce what I've said, what matters to Paul, since no absolute moral norm is involved in the issues at hand, are not the specific behaviors practiced, but the motivation 
that informs the behavior. So we need to accept one another. These two parties needed to accept one another. Secondly, they needed to remind it that both of them were equally accountable to God. And it says here in our text that Jesus Christ died and rose again to have that right. When you come to Christ and you are a believer in Christ, Jesus has bought you with a price, his blood. And he's bought the right to be your master. And you're accountable to him. All right, thirdly, find a third principle in verses 13 to 23. Let's read those verses. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in your brother's way. As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. If your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love Do not, by your eating, destroy your brother for whom Christ died. Do not allow what you consider good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by men. Let us, therefore, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a man to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. All right, there's a lot to weed through in those verses. But let me try to summarize the third principle for you this way. Both parties must avoid their unique opportunities to sin. Both parties need to avoid their unique opportunities to sin. Let's talk about the opportunity to sin that the strong could could do. It says that the that the strong person should not cause the weak to stumble. I'd like to try to convince you this morning that the stumbling here is a is a very serious thing. We read a word like the one in verse verse 15 where it says the weaker person is distressed And we think of that as merely being offended or hurt. One person put it this way, being grieved or distressed is often misunderstood to denote the feelings of sadness on experiences when others engage in behavior that is deemed inappropriate. And sometimes it's used as a joke, right? You you have a friend that does something that you don't do and they'll say, hey, you say, don't cause me to stumble. But stumbling in this section of scripture is a very serious matter. And I think that the words that are used for this, con- for this concept throughout the verses that we just read, verses 13 to 23, 
lead us in this direction. Look at the words that are used for, for, for this, what the strong person could do to the weak person. In verse 13 and verse 20, it talks about a stumbling block. Also in verse 13, it talks about an obstacle being put in their way. Verse 15, it says that the weaker person is distressed. In verse 15, it talks about the strong person destroying the weak person. And another word in verse 23, it talks about the weak person being condemned. When you put all of those words for this concept together, you start to get the idea that this is more just like, I don't like it that he went to Buffalo Wild Wings. I, I wouldn't do that. What the Bible is talking about here is much more serious than that. And you can see it not only from the words that are being used, but the way those words are used elsewhere in the New Testament. Stumbling block the word that's translated stumbling block in our passage is used several times throughout the New Testament. And as one person has said, it's always used in the New Testament with reference to spiritual downfall. Not just, I'm annoyed and grieved that you did that, but spiritual downfall. Jesus is referred to as a stumbling block several times throughout the New Testament. Because people, in essence, stumble over the person of Jesus. The cross and the message of the gospel is offensive. It's an obstacle in people's paths. And they cannot exercise faith in Jesus. They stumble at him. It's offensive to think that they are sinners. It's offensive to think that we can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and make ourselves acceptable to God. That's an offensive message. To accept that message, you have to humble yourself. People fall all the time at the person of Jesus. And what happens to people who fall at the person and work of Jesus? Eternal destruction. And that's the word that he uses here. He uses the word obstacle, as I've already mentioned, in verse 13. He talks about how a believer can be, uh, the, other, the weaker brother can be distressed in verse 15. He talks about the weaker brother being destroyed in verse 15. Usage throughout all of Paul's letters suggests that Paul is warning the strong that their behavior has the potential to bring the weak to ultimate spiritual ruin, failure to attain final salvation. And then it talks about them finally, as we've said, a person, a person who is weak eventually brings condemnation upon themselves. This isn't an automatic thing. It automatically ha- happens. But let's think for a minute about how it could happen and try to understand why the Bible, um, why the Bible takes this so seriously. What probably was happening in the situation there was that you had the strong believers blatantly and without love trying to coerce the other, their, their brethren who could not participate, trying to get them to do it anyway against their conscience. 
So you have a person who thinks it's wrong to do fill in the blank. In this case, you have a person who thinks it's wrong to not observe the holy days or to eat meat. And yet you're constantly putting them down or constantly trying to get them to do it anyway. And then maybe because of the pressure, they eventually cave in and sin against their conscience. The Bible does not take sinning against your conscience lightly. It may not be sin for them to go ahead and do these in actuality. But if they think it is and do it anyway, it's just like any other sinful activity. It is serious business if you think something is sin or know something is sin and say, ah, I'm going to do it anyway. Because that creates a pattern. When sin becomes minimized, it creates a pattern and sets you on a path in the wrong direction. And so what Paul is saying here to these two groups is, listen, stronger brother, if you keep behaving this way, you could lead other people in your church to spiritual ruin. That's their unique opportunity to sin. And so causing someone to sin is participating in an activity or encouraging someone to go against their conscience and participate even when they think it's wrong to do so. And that is serious business that the Bible does not take lightly. It says the, the weak, I've already touched on this, but the weak should not, their unique opportunity to sin is to give in and do something against their conscience. They think something is wrong. They're not sure about it. But whether it's to be accepted or whatever the reason may be, they go ahead and do it anyway. What the Bible says at the end, whatever is not of faith, of conviction, of full assurance, whatever is not of faith is sin. And so they needed... They needed to not act against their conscience. A note about the conscience. When you say, let your conscience be your guide. Your conscience needs to be informed by scripture. Everyone's conscience is informed by something. And there are some people whose consciences do not bother them over things that they really should. So, to, so just to make sure that we're all clear, when we're talking about conscience and we're talking about acting, acting against our conscience, we're, talking, we're not talking about something that is infallible, that will lead you the right way every time. Your conscience needs to be informed by Scripture. Scripture talks about people who turn away from Christ and they do so without any pangs of conscience because their conscience has been seared, which is a Bible way of saying they've been, they've been deadened. They don't work the way they're supposed to. And for these weak believers in this situation, their conscience wasn't fully trained. And so rather than giving the, the, advice, rather than giving the advice that we might give if we didn't have Scripture to guide us, I would say, hey, you know what? Go ahead and do it. It's not wrong. I know you think it's wrong. Just get over it. Go ahead and do it. The Bible doesn't take that that direction and the weak shouldn't either 
As I've said, sin has to be taken seriously. Playing with sin is like playing with a loaded gun. It has enormous potential to hurt and maim and, yes, even kill. One should not act against one's conscience, and to influence others to act against their conscience is serious business. Practically, then, the strong should do three things. The strong should put love before liberty. Look at verse 15. It says, if your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. What the strong people should do is put love before liberty. Though they have the liberty to do certain things, love should be the the overarching thing that governs their actions, not the liberty that they can have. Rights must be laid aside in the interest of love. Another thing that the strong should do Look at verse 19. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. The strong should promote peace before their liberty. The strong should not introduce disunity by holding the weaker brother in contempt or constantly distressing or grieving him by the use of that liberty. It is disrespectful and could be ultimately spiritual, harmful, spiritually harmful to that person. Thirdly, verse 22 says, So whatever, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. The strong have liberty to practice privately what they may not be able to practice publicly. That isn't hypocrisy. It's love. Paul isn't necessarily requiring strong believers never to mention their views on these matters or to speak of their sense of freedom before others. But they're not supposed to put a stumbling block in the way of the weak. And this will mean that the strong are not to brag about their convictions before the weak. And especially that they're not to propagandize the weak. The strong may have the ability to practice privately what they cannot practice publicly and the weak addressing the weak the weak should follow this principle when in doubt don't if there is a question in your mind about the legitimacy of what you are about to participate in don't go against your conscience continue to study the scriptures and get wisdom all right so we got now we're to the fourth principle We've said that they're to accept one another. They're to remember that they're mutually accountable to God. They need to remember that they each have unique temptations to sin in the situation. And fourthly, both parties must promote unity for the glory of God. All throughout the book of Romans, the glory of God is brought up again and again as the ultimate end of why God has done all of this. So it's no surprise that he would bring it up again in this section even when talking about disagreements that believers have with one another. So in chapter in 15, and we don't have time to read through it, but in chapter 15, in verses, verses 1 through 13, talk about this. You can read it later. 
But verse 1, it says, the strong should bear with the failings of the weak. Yeah, Paul's saying, you know what? You're right. They should be able to do this. But the bottom line is, right now, they can't. And so as a stronger brother, don't abuse your strength. Rather, bear with the failings of the weak. Bear with them. And he says to both of them, again, in verse 7, that they're to mutually accept one another. And the reason he says that is because he wants there to be, as our text says, joy, peace, and unity in the assembly. And when an assembly is filled with joy and peace and unity, that is accomplishing God's ultimate purpose of bringing glory to himself by calling out people, whether they be Gentiles or not people that weren't formerly Jewish people that come to Christ or Jews that come to Christ. He's putting them together and he's doing this amazing thing in this body so that it will bring him glory. So I know you're hung up right now on this disagreement, but remember what you should, should be doing is promoting unity for my glory. All right. So now we're to my, my last bucket of things. There's a glare on the clock, so I can't see what time it says. I don't want to know, Andrea. She's holding things up. I don't want to know. <laughs> we'll finish quickly. Well, let's... We don't have exact parallels to this situation, a lot of exact parallels to this situation. Because you remember what we've said over and over again is the, what the issue that is at stake here is, something, is a liberty that they clearly could have but could not fully grasp. A lot of the times, the things that you and I disagree on aren't necessarily things that it's clear you can participate in this activity and you just, you just don't. You know, I could take you to the verse and say you can do this, and I'm not going to bring up examples because then we'll get sidetracked on the examples. But there are, most, of our, most of our disagreements aren't exactly a one-to-one comparison to what's going on in this text. But the four principles that I mentioned transcend the exact thing that was going on here. We're still to accept one another. We're still all mutually accountable to God. When we have disagreements, we all have unique abilities to sin. And we all need to remember that the, that the glory, unity of the church and the glory of God is our ultimate goal in our relations with one another. So understanding that it's not a one-to-one comparison, though, you need to keep in mind, and I need to keep in mind, that when you have a disagreement with a, another brother or sister and you do something and they don't, that doesn't automatically make you the stronger brother and them the weaker. And that gets thrown around a lot. You can't do that? Okay, you're the, you're the weaker? Okay, I'll bear with you. Uh, that's, that's not usually the things that we encounter. So we need to be very careful when we look at somebody else and say, they, I can, they can't, I'm strong, they're weak. A lot of times the disagreements that we have are just interpretive disagreements. It's not a matter of strong versus weak. Another thing that we need to keep in mind is that many of our disagreements do not center or are not so serious as to lead a brother or sister into sin. What some people have done with this passage is have used it as an opportunity to say that everyone in a church needs to be held hostage by the person with the weakest conscience. 
that isn't necessarily the case. We have to ask ourselves the question, is my participation in this going to lead somebody into going against their conscience and doing it anyway? Am I pressuring that person in this direction? A lot of times that isn't happening in the situations that we run, that we run into. You do this, I do this. I'm not going to do what you do, you're not going to do what I do. We're going to agree to disagree. We can talk about it, but it's not necessarily leading one another into sin. But that could happen. And we should be conscious of the different backgrounds and experiences of our brothers and sisters in our local assembly, and we should try to work to edify them in any way possible that we can. In other words, it may not be an exact situation, but our default needs to be love. And that's hard, (laughs) really hard. Because I don't, I want to love a person and do what I want to do. But sometimes the two things are incompatible. And love has to win. Thirdly, stricter doesn't always mean better. In this situation, the person that's more strict is the person who keeps the Sabbath, keeps the holy days, and abstains. And probably everyone, he would say, well, I've got the higher standards. Well, let's remember, it isn't a game of who can have the highest standards. It's what does the Bible say? And how are we trying to make decisions with wisdom applied to the realities of life that we're going to encounter in different situations and different activities. Don't think that stricter always equals better because in this case, stricter was weaker. Fourth reminder, the principle of restricting one's liberties for the promotion of unity is not inauthentic. It's not hypocrisy if it's done the right way. It can be very loving. Five, persuading someone to act against one's conscience, as a reminder, is not something to be taken lightly. Don't do that. Don't ever do that. Use caution. When somebody is talking to you about something and they're wondering, you may give them your opinion, but let God work in their heart You don't have to be the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be their faith. They're going to answer to God for how they act and the motivations behind it. And you are going to answer to God for how you influence them. Lastly, acting against one's conscience is sin, regardless of whether the activity is actually sinful. If you're in doubt, don't do it. Don't do it. Continue to study the scriptures and pray and come to a conclusion about it. Well, um, that's, that's all I've got. I hope Romans 14, beginning of 15, can be a tool for you that you, you can use. We have disagreements all the time. But hopefully at least is a start, an overview for using the tool the right way. Okay? Let's pray. God, we're so thankful to you that we were able to participate in the worship service this morning and we were able to sing and give and pray and and speak to one another and hear your word Uh, just all the different aspects of worship that we've been able to participate in Um, we're thankful 
to you for making all this possible, for purchasing us. We are your servants. And I pray as disagreements come up, as we know they will, that we would seek to let love be the governing uh, force in our lives for the way that we promote unity among the body for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that I pray it. Amen.